Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with author and founder of Brumley Law Firm, Joshua Brumley. From his base in Seattle, Washington, he opened up about his life as an attorney and founder of the Brumley Law Firm. He is also a pro-tem judge, professor at Highline College, and a car crash rights educator. We get into his history of growing up with a single mother, meeting his biological father at the age of 21, and so much more. Enjoy this interview. Absolutely. So I want to begin our conversation with what we lived through for the last three and a half years. How did you make it through the pandemic and how did it change you? Well, lawyer, uh, legal work, all, all the court system, we're we're like the slowest to respond to technological advances. And COVID forced the court systems to integrate a lot more technology. Yeah. Most of the courts were not equipped for Zoom and every court had to like almost overnight get that infrastructure built in. And so um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was doing some public defense work and all of the courts went remote and all of the prosecutors went remote and the jails were trying very hard to empty everyone out of the jails so that there wouldn't be the risk of COVID inside the jails. So we had this huge need for public defenders to go into the jails while everyone else was remote. And that was already, you know, a weird thing, right? Because if the judge gets to be remote, the prosecutor gets to be remote, but I have to stand right next to my person right here in the jail where he's around a million people. All right, that's my job. I got to do it. So I was going into the jails on a regular basis and um, I was asking folks, you know, what's going on? How can we get you out of here today? Okay, let's get you out of here. And the, the courts were just kind of rubber stamping everyone. Just, okay, well, hopefully you come back when, when this is all over. The courts are going to be closed though. So the courts ended up being closed for maybe three or four months. And I had to put all my staff on unemployment, standby work. And I just had to do all the work myself because the work didn't stop during that time period. And everyone was sort of just what's going on? Everyone's, all my staff's asking questions. All my clients are asking questions. Do I have court tomorrow? What's going on? And I just had to be the guy for everything. Um, Right now I have a staff of about 13 and it was, it was similar, maybe a little smaller right before the pandemic, but, but that uh, court infrastructure that got built out has totally changed the industry. So now people are, are able to appear remotely for court hearings. Lawyers are al- allowed to appear remotely for court hearings. And, um, you know, before COVID, I was probably in four different cities by noon every day, just trying to make it to all these different court hearings. And now I just sit at my computer. I could have two computers open and be in two courts physically miles apart all at the same time, just waiting for my case to be called. It's so much more efficient and it should have been something that the, the courts invested time and money into a lot longer ago but just never happened you know yeah so that that kind of forced their hands and and i think it's it's better for everybody it saves taxpayer money it saves time for the courts it's it's more efficient for the people who have to sit there and wait and um translators are more effective now um interpreter services that that people need sometimes that's something that you know it was either on the phone or physically in person and you'd have to sit there and wait for your your interpreter to show up but now they just log into zoom and you can see their face you can communicate better than if they were just on the phone and it's it's a lot more efficient i think it's better for everybody involved 
Absolutely, I agree. And I think it's it's the same way in like therapeutic communities. It's like it always took so much effort to just get everybody ready, drive, wait, and all of that. So when you can have that convenience of, I mean, you're still going to have the appointment. It's all going to be okay, but it's just yeah. done in a more convenient way. So let's get to the heart and soul of what you do on a daily basis. I'm going to put you yeah. in front of a bunch of third graders. It's career day. And one of the kids eagerly says, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that child? Car crash, call Josh. That's that's the slogan. <laughs> and um, I'm a lawyer. I love being in court. But a lot of what we do is just negotiations in, in the car accident world. So someone says, hey, I was injured in a car accident. I help them to get the medical treatment that they need. At the end of their medical treatment, I gather all their bills. And I send a letter to the insurance company and I say, I want a million dollars. And they say, not a chance. We'll give you 500 bucks. And then we meet somewhere in the middle. Okay. All right. So talk to me a little bit about what you wanted to be in the third grade. What did you want to grow up and become? I think, I think in third grade, I was still on the Jurassic Park kick. I wanted to be a paleontologist. That was the huge thing back then. Uh, absolutely no desire to be a paleontologist anymore, but um, still love dinosaurs. You know, that's yeah. a big, big, important part of any young man's life. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that for me, it was meeting my father for the very first time that kind of spurred this interest in being a lawyer. Um, I was raised by a single mom. My father just kind of left when when she was pregnant and um, I found him on the Internet and he was a lawyer and um, he offered to pay for the rest of my undergrad. The um, undergrad I finished was a, a bachelor's in business. And I said, well, what if I want to go to law school? And he was a lawyer and he said, I'd love for you to go to law school. So I did. And that was sort of the thing that that pushed me in that direction. Um like I said, I was raised by my mom. I only knew my mom until I was about 21 years old. And when I met my father for the first time, just that phone call, I could immediately see more resemblance with my life and him than my mother. And and that's that whole nature versus nurture thing. It's so interesting to to think about, you know, my mom raised me every moment, every day till I was 21 years old. I call this guy and our laugh is the same. Our sense of humor is the same. Our face is similar. It's it's so weird. Wow. And um, after after talking with him for a short time, I said, "Man, whatever he's doing is probably what's right for me if I'm so similar to him." So let me let me talk to him about it. Let me dig into this. And and I took the LSATs and got into law school and moved to Florida for a bit and. Um, finished my law school degree, my JD, and also got my MBA because I said, I don't want to go back to college. If I don't like being a lawyer, let me just get both degrees right now. And then if I hate it, I'll go work for a bank or something. Um, but I've absolutely loved it. It's, it's, it's never felt like a job to me. Yeah. And I've yeah. never had any, you know, role where I'm just like excited every weekend I'm at work every night I'm excited to get back on the computer um I I've had lots of jobs that I did not like but this is the only one I've ever had where I'm just like excited every single day to come to work and I hope everyone can feel this feeling because it's it's not worth it to go to a job that you hate and it's it's terrible it's it's grueling and depressing and um 
Yeah. So I, I, I love it. I, I absolutely think that there's a similarity between playing music and being the center of attention, being in a band. I, I did that for a long time before um, law school. And and that same center of attention is is how you feel when you're in court or when you're in front of a jury. And it's that same rush of like performance, you know, it's like acting maybe, but it's it's so fun. It's so great. I, I can't imagine doing anything else. Well, and, and, and the story of meeting your dad after that long, that's quite a story of forgiveness. How did all of that kind of materialize? Was that an easy path to forgive? I think um, it's easier for me than maybe like my mom would have had the 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 harder time you know i never knew the guy so it was it was more just like i i have this big question mark in my head of who is this person that's responsible for my life being created you know i don't know anything about him or his family or his heritage um i knew that um his family apparently was wealthy and very religiously jewish and my mother wasn't jewish and so his family told him, you're not going to be um, part of our lives if you stay with this woman. And so he left and he joined the army. And then after the army, he um, went to law school, undergrad in law school, and then became a lawyer. And my mom just kind of had to do it all on her own. And that was really difficult for her. And I saw her struggle. I'm I'm the oldest of five kids. And so I was the the only boy and, and the oldest. So I had to help raise my sisters and I had watched her struggle for, for my entire childhood. But um, I didn't ever blame that on him. And I think she, a part of her blamed that on him, you know? And um, so when I met him for the first time, it was never about blame. It was, it was really just about excitement like who's this guy i was so excited and and then i talked to him and i said you know why didn't you ever reach out why didn't you ever try to find me why am i 21 years old and and the kid trying to find you and he said well to be honest i was just kind of upset that your mom got pregnant and i kind of took it out on you and my relationship with you i was only 20 when your mom got pregnant and i i just as i got older and I realized how stupid that was. It had already been so long that I was like, you know, someday he'll reach out to me and I'll just be receptive when that happens. And he was incredibly receptive. Um, he paid for my undergrad, the the uh, tuition and books that I needed so that I didn't have to stop going to undergrad. And then when I, um, when I told him I wanted to do the LSAT, he paid for my LSAT prep course. He paid for a second LSAT prep course when I didn't do so hot on the first LSAT. And after I got into law school, I called him and I said, hey, I got this really great opportunity. He was living in Florida. I had flown out to see him twice. And um, um, he said, well, if if you move to Florida and you go to this law school, what are you going to expect from me? And I said, well, I got this really awesome scholarship. It's not a full ride, um, but it's significant. And if you can just pay the difference in that scholarship and my tuition and pay for my books, you know, room and board will be up to me. I'll find a job. I'll, I'll find a place. I'm not trying to live with you or anything crazy like that. And he said, I don't remember uh, saying that I was going to pay for your law school. And that was the beginning of the rift that... Um, kind of redissolved that relationship. It was really sad because I think he thought I was asking something uh, 
I didn't deserve maybe. And, and I thought he had offered this. And so I, I just chalked it up to miscommunication and said, don't worry, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll call you after I'm settled down there. And then for three years, I lived in Jacksonville, Florida, and he was in Orlando, Florida. And uh, I would drive down and um, show up to his law firm. He wouldn't answer my calls. He wouldn't, he wouldn't see me. And for three years, I lived down there and um, he just ignored my existence. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wild. So who's been a hero for you? You've obviously had to draw strength from people. Who, who's who been that for you? A uh, hero for me, I, I have a wonderful grandfather. I I, I really like, I have a, a very strong, um, kind, religious grandfather who's who's been, you know, very vocal about his dislike for for the the person that my father's turned into, but he he always kind of reminded me that rather than let something like that happen to me and let it um, hold me back or be an excuse for not being successful, it, it always motivated me. And, you know, I, I could have stopped law school when I got down there and said, you know, I'm just too sad. This dad stuff is just weighing on me too much. But it was sort of a motivator for me to say, you know what, I'm awesome. I'm going to succeed in spite of this guy. And I'm going to drop my business card off to his office and remind him that I did that without his help. While everyone else in law school has a father or a brother or an uncle or a grandpa who's a lawyer and can call for help. I just had to do it on my own in a state that I didn't know anyone at. And um, my grandfather never let me forget that I did that and and remind me that that he's really proud of, of who I am. My mom is is a wonderful, strong woman who had to deal with a lot of lot of roadblocks but would bend over backwards and do anything she needed to help me or to help her kids and that means a lot to me um yeah i think i think those two family members are really the the pivotal people in my life that that have led me to be where i am now so coming out of seattle and being somebody that's been a musician um what what's what's the the most mind-blowing live show you ever saw um there's a music festival in California, actually. So it's not even Seattle, but but this is the the one that I always think of when this question comes up. There's this music festival called Sound and Fury. And Sound and Fury is like two full days, like 10 bands a day, you know, local bands in the morning or afternoon, and then in the evening, the bigger national acts. And it's like a punk music festival. And um you know, sometimes bands from Seattle will come down and travel down there and play. And and one year I went down there and it was it was this huge, great first day. And someone drives a motorcycle into the venue, into the like crowd of people, not like aggressively, just to yeah. be like silly. And then the cops come and they shut the whole music festival down. And it was really sad. And, you know, a punk music festival isn't going to be kind of anti-police anyway. So yeah. there was all this aggression and everyone was like, what are we going to do? Everyone flew here from all over the country and the biggest bands from the second day didn't even get to play. So then this this kid, like an hour away, he says, everyone can come to my house. And the three like biggest headlining bands from the next day played in his backyard and everyone who had the ability to get to this guy's house got to watch those bands for free. And the the backyard was fenced. And all these people are crammed into this kid's backyard like sardines. And then 
people are standing on the entire fence line and then people got onto his roof and his garage roof and people are jumping off the roof into the crowd and it was just pandemonium. And I remember talking to the singer of one of those bands much later and I said, do you remember that house show? And he said, to this day, that's still the wildest show we've ever played. And I said, to this day, that's, <laughs> that's still awesome. the wildest show I've ever been to. It was so cool. And it was California in the yep. summer at night. So it's like sunny, but not too oh. hot. And, oh, it was just the, the perfect summer evening. What a great story. The romanticism is off the charts with that. Um, yeah. So what is your motivation every day? What gets you out of bed? What gets you to be you to help others and to ultimately evolve and be who you are? I, I, I think that my mom is a really big part of that. So, so she was someone, like I said, she had to raise five kids basically by herself. Um, she absolutely took advantage of any sort of, uh, government assistance or legal assistance that she could. Um, and that was something that was never really, you know, something I was embarrassed about or, or grew to be like you know shy about and um as i became a lawyer it was really important to me to find ways to give back to people in that same capacity so i did a lot of work um with family law clinics sort of volunteering my time to people who needed help creating parenting plans or victims of domestic violence my mother was a, a victim of domestic violence for most of my childhood with with the next couple of guys that she was around. And, um, and that is something that I, you know, as a kid, I can't do anything about, but as an adult now, I can see those, those situations and give legal guidance for people who are in those same situations to help them get out of those situations and protect their children and not be financially dependent on some piece of garbage. And so the, um, the family law clinics have been a huge um, motivation. I did a lot of family law when I first started, but there's a difference between charging someone an hourly rate for my time and working on a case or donating my time and saying this person did not have the money for a lawyer in the first place, but I've changed their life by donating this time. There are not enough attorneys who are willing to just give their time. Lots of lawyers give money to these clinics, but these clinics are completely understaffed. They need lawyers to spend the time doing the work and they don't have the money to pay more lawyers to do more of the work. And there's just so much need. It's, it's immense. And so giving back in those ways has always made me feel so incredible, just so full. And people just weep for 30 minutes of your time to, to give them the guidance and, and, clarity and and relieve that stress you can almost watch it melt away from their face when you're giving this very you know from a family law uh attorney perspective very simple advice you know do this form this is what you say when you go into court call me if you have questions you know yeah. that's it and people usually don't even call they just they love the fact that they got 30 minutes of your time and they just, they're so thankful. It's, it's really important, I think, to give back in that capacity. And that's sort of the same feeling I get doing this, this car accident work, um, which is all I do now. Uh, like I said, car crash called Josh, big important part of, of the practice now. Um, I have four offices and, and, um, like I said, a staff of about 13 right now. The, the car accident world is very similar 
to the type of work that I'm used to doing public defense and doing this clinic stuff, rich folks don't hire a car accident attorney for a small accident. The people that hire a car accident attorney are working class folks who are like, I had to call in sick to work today. My car's broken and I don't know how I'm going to get to work tomorrow and I can't lose this job. And those are the people that call my office and are stressed out. Some of them, English is their second language. Some of them have immigration consequences that they're worried about. And those folks are, are really hardworking people who are just rear-ended or, or, you know, crashed into by someone looking at their cell phone or something silly. Yeah. And they don't know what the process is and giving them those tools, helping to equip them with, you know, just information. Hey, this is, this is how this process works. And this is how we're going to help you get through that. And at the end of this process, not only is your body going to be better off from getting the medical treatment that you need, your car is going to be fixed and you're going to be, you know, compensated for the pain and suffering you had to deal with or any lost wages from, from not being able to get to work for those two weeks or whatever it was. And so, you know, people, people are worried about losing their homes. They're worried about their families. They're worried about being a single income family where they have to take time off of work to get a surgery. That's one that I'm, I'm, I was talking with the guy in here today. He's the father of six and his wife doesn't speak any English and doesn't work and takes care of the household. And he said, I can't take time off to get this surgery because I don't know how my family will eat while I'm healing from this surgery. And so we found a solution for him. He's going to get the surgery he needs. And, and the poor guy has just been suffering from working with a different law firm um, before coming to me. And it's, it's just really sad that sometimes this kind of in-depth life understanding is not a part of, of the legal analysis. Um, some lawyers don't even take these more small cases. They're looking for the catastrophic injuries and they want to do the least amount of work or the, the most amount of work on the least amount of cases. And my goal's never been that. And my goal is, excuse me, my goal has always been, how can I help the most amount of people? Yeah. And so, um, you know, if, if a car crash happens and it's a tiny little fender bender, I can still help. People still deserve to be compensated for that and and not have to spend their time going through their insurance, getting the the car fixed and and take time off of work to deal with all this stuff. Um and the insurance companies are going to minimize whatever they can pay out in any capacity, but working with a lawyer is is beneficial and working with a lawyer in car accidents, you don't pay any money up front. So you can get a free consultation, you can uh, work with the lawyer, and they just get a, a percentage of what they recover. So their interests are really aligned with yours to get you every penny that, that they can. So let's say you have a dream tonight. You run into that version of you right before you went to college, and you could give that young version of you a piece of advice based on the wisdom that you've gained in your life up to this point. What advice would you impart on that young version of you? I think everything happens for a reason, and I've always believed that, and I don't know that there's a single piece of advice that I would impart on that person because I wouldn't want to change the path that's led me here to today. I think that there were enough roadblocks in my way that I had to build that ability to overcome adversity to be the person I am right now. I had a... Um, uh, a falling out with my mom's last husband when I was 18 years old. 
and he asked me to leave. They were living together in his home and he said, just leave. And he changed the locks and it was the month I turned 18 and I was in uh, running start. So I was in undergrad at the time and I, I had to live in my car. I, I lived in my car for, you know, a short time. I was working at a Burger King and, you know, brushing my teeth in the Burger King bathroom in the morning and then going to college. And my grades obviously suffered. I, I had to work more so that I could find an apartment and got my own place. But my grades were a big thing that was holding me back when I got into University of Washington. I actually had an advisor who told me, you will never go to law school with the grades that you have. And that is something that weighed on me for a long time, but I didn't let it stop me from trying. It just was like, again, that motivation, like you can't tell me what I can't do and I'm going to be motivated to prove you wrong. So if there was a way I could go back in time and talk to my younger self and say, don't, don't let anything anyone ever tells you that you can't do hold you back from still trying because no one knows what you can accomplish. Yeah, Only you do. For sure. So Joshua, at the end of the day, everyone has a perception of you, family, friends, clients, colleagues, but you run the show. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? I was recently introduced at an award ceremony as everyone's best friend. And I, I thought that that was the most kind introduction. Um, I really try hard to go out of my way for other people. And I love that that is how someone else perceived me because I think that's how I perceive myself immediately, you know, a stranger. I, I'm, I just, there's no reason not to be friendly to, to anyone you speak to. And I think that the world could do better with more of that kind of behavior. And, um, that's, that's the light that I set for the world. Right on. So if anyone wants to hire you, reach out to you, consultation, anything involving you and your world, where do they go? Uh, BrumleyLawFirm.com. You can call our 800 number, 833-83-CAR-CRASH. 24 hours a day, you'll get someone. Um, that that answering service sends it directly to my cell phone, so you'll probably get directly to me on my cell phone, even in the middle of the night. I'm always working. I love what I do, and I love to help people. So if anyone needs anything, please reach out. Right on. This has been great, Joshua. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Have a great 2024. Yeah, you too, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, business, spirituality, music, and more from around the globe. Our esteemed theme music was composed and produced by the great E.E. E. Pointer of Kansas City's River Cow Orchestra. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Yeah.